ReachMD XM157 presents a special series, Insights in Future Medicine. What is the future of newborn screening? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Beth Tarini, clinical lecturer in the Child Health Evaluation and Research Unit with the University of Michigan C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dr. Tarini is the lead author of the Archives of Pediatrics Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine article, The Current Revolution in Newborn Screening, New Technology, Old Controversies. Dr. Torini, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Give us a newborn screening history lesson. Well, newborn screening is a public health program that was really born in the 1960s when a physician by the name of Robert Guthrie discovered a way to test newborns for a disorder called phenylketonuria, otherwise known as PKU, that was known to cause devastating effects such as mental retardation in young children in whom it often went undetected. And in the 60s, Dr. Guthrie was able to develop a test that could detect phenylketonuria by using one drop of blood placed on a piece of paper. From that point on, newborn screening was born. And the test became first widely introduced in the state of Massachusetts, And then over the next five years throughout the United States, many states began to pass legislation charging their public health departments with implementing this testing. What led to your interest in this area? I'm a general pediatrician who's interested in genetic technology and the implementation of new genetic technology in pediatrics. And so uh, natural interest, therefore, would be newborn screening, since newborn screening is a way to detect genetic conditions in children. What are the most commonly screened disorders? Well, PKU, or phenylketonuria, was the first disorder tested by newborn screening, and as such, it's become synonymous with newborn screening. Many people still, in fact, refer to this program incorrectly so as as the PKU screening program. So PKU is a core disorder screened by all states in the country. Other disorders for which all states screen are congenital hypothyroidism, sickle cell disease, and galactosemia, which is a disorder in which children can't metabolize galactose, which is a product of lactose commonly found in milk products. Do states screen for different things beyond these? An interesting point you bring up, newborn screening has undergone a revolution of sorts. In the last 10 years, the new technology of tandem mass spectrometry has allowed states to screen for at least 40 disorders, where in the past, on average, they've screened for about eight How many newborns are screened annually? Four million newborns are screened through the newborn screening program each year, and that counts for every child born in the United States. So this is the amazing achievement of the newborn screening program as a public health program because it has an ability to reach every child born in this country. What are the traditional goals of newborn screening? The basic goal of newborn screening is to identify infants with a potentially devastating inherited disorder before the symptoms actually present and to provide these infants with treatment that will keep them healthy and prevent them from having permanent damage such as mental retardation. When a positive newborn screen result is confirmed, how can coordination of follow-up care be optimized by the team? When a newborn receives a positive result, this can definitely be a frightening experience for the parent 
and a challenging one for the primary care physician who often discloses the news of the positive screen to the parents. It's important at that point to step back and realize that a positive screening result does not mean the child has the disorder. It means the child is at risk to have the disorder and needs additional testing. So at this point, optimizing communication between physicians and parents is an important step towards optimizing follow-up care. At the point in which a child receives a positive newborn screen, parents will have a number of questions and concerns for the physician who's disclosing this information to them. And we need to ensure that we provide physicians with the resources they need to address parents' concerns, answer their questions, and address their emotional needs. So we'll take a concerted effort of educating and supporting primary care physicians. What is your best advice for communicating the benefits and risks of newborn screening as well as the implications of test results to parents? Well, my best advice is you want to inform the parents, but at the same time not overwhelm them. In my experience, my best discussions with parents have happened in person when it's possible and have gone through every question the parent has, both giving them information they feel they need and supporting them in a time in which they have a frightening concern that their child may not be as healthy as they once thought. Do mandated screening tests exist even when there is no guarantee a child will develop a disease? This is an important and subtle point. We're testing infants in the newborn screening program who do not have any symptoms. So for all intents and purposes, they appear and act like healthy newborns. And it's only additional test results after the newborn screen that may become abnormal and suggest disease. But again, the child will appear healthy in nearly all circumstances. However, there are some disorders currently screened by states in which infants who have abnormal testing following that newborn screen will only develop mild or possibly no symptoms of the disease ever. And two disorders in which this controversy has arisen recently are 3-MCC deficiency and short-chain acyl coenzyme A dehydrogenase deficiency, or SCAD. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Beth Torini, clinical lecturer in the Child Health Evaluation Research Unit with the University of Michigan C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan, discussing newborn screening. Dr. Torini, if evidence of therapeutic benefit is not necessary, where will the line be drawn for adding more tests to the newborn screening panel? Well, the issue of deciding when to add a test to a newborn screening panel is an important and controversial one at the present time. In the past, we were often prevented from screening for a certain disorder but because we simply didn't have a test developed. That situation is becoming less common given the rapid advances in genetic technology. As a result, it's becoming more common that we're able to identify individuals will develop a disease before we can adequately treat all the symptoms of that disease. So the question that arises is, how do we define therapeutic benefit? And traditionally, we have defined it by our ability to minimize symptoms. However, this view is currently being challenged, and some are saying that perhaps we should redefine our definition of benefit, given the potentially current limitations of our medicine, and that we should consider psychosocial benefits to the family as a benefit to be considered when deciding whether or not a newborn screening test should be added to a panel. 
What is the future of newborn screening? Well, the future of newborn screening is that we will continue to struggle with these issues of what tests to add and how to inform parents and how to prepare clinicians to discuss disorders with parents. The reason is, first, technology is increasingly expanding our ability to test for genetic abnormalities. Second, in some cases, the disorders for which we can test are rare, and so clinicians may not have much experience in dealing with them, and this may affect their ability to counsel parents. And third, newborn screening is a public health system that involves coordination at many levels, from the state to the primary care physician to the specialist to the access to care that the children need. These are all challenges that will become increasingly more prevalent as new technology is presented. Who are the groups that are making these decisions? Newborn screening is directed at the state level. So each state ultimately decides what disorders a newborn will be tested for in that state. That being said, there are national recommendations that come out from, for instance, the American College of Medical Genetics, which is comprised of experts in the field who suggest to the states which disorders they might consider adding to their panel. And who's driving those decisions typically within each of the states? Those who are present at the table making the decisions differs within each state. In many cases, however, there are, sitting at that table, public health officials, specialists in genetics, representatives from parent groups who are comprised of parents of children who have those disorders, and um, primary care physicians. What percentage of parents even know that newborn screening is done? We don't have a definite answer on how many parents know that a newborn screening test was done or to what degree they understand the mission of the newborn screen or all the tests that were done. We do know that there is a continued concerted effort to make parents aware of newborn screening and to make them aware of what disorders children are tested for in their state. In terms of how much they want to know, what feedback do you receive from parents in this regard? Well, we have found in studies that parents often say they would like more information before the actual test is drawn after birth. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the first parents learn of newborn screening is shortly after the birth of the child, in the first day or two when the child's blood is taken. In studies, parents have said that they would prefer to learn about this information during the prenatal period. What is the vulnerable child syndrome? The vulnerable child syndrome is a phenomenon by which a parent experiences a threat to the health of the child. That threat could be real, as in the child could sustain a life-threatening illness or accident, or it could be perceived in which no actual physical threat occurred, but a parent perceived there was a potential threat to the child's health. After the subsequent threat, be it real or perceived, parents who experience a vulnerable child syndrome may sometimes misperceive future health risks out of proportion to the actual risk it poses to the child. So what you see, for example, is the parent may take the child to the doctor more often for common illnesses of childhood. The parent may restrict the child from play for fear of injury. And so the child's lifestyle 
is restricted in some way. How can listeners learn more? Listeners can learn more by going to their state public health websites. And on those websites, both physicians and parents can learn about, first, what disorders are screened for in their state, and second, more about those disorders and the symptoms and treatment for them. Dr. Tarini, thank you for joining us to discuss newborn screening. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to a special series, Insights in Future Medicine, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.